0: It's been our great delight to have our church planters in Albania, Bertie and Jenny Cohn and their family, with us for these last few weeks. Today is their last Sunday here with us for a while. The travel papers that you've been praying for have finally come through, and so they will be headed back to the mission field of Albania this week. You'll want to get your last farewell said to them today. But they are a perfect illustration of our text today because even though we will be separated by 5,291 miles after this week from the Konas, our attachment of love is strong and a source of great delight. The Christian is deeply serious about love. In fact, the critique of non-Christians is whenever we make any sort of moral statement about transgenderism or homosexuality or abortion, is the immediate statement is, well, you're not being loving. You'll never hear that critique by the way of Hindus or Muslims or Buddhists, why? Because there are no expectations that any of those would be loving. But even the most hardened unbeliever knows that the Christian must be characterized by love, especially of fellow Christians. Now, let me hasten to say that the lost man hardly has a clue what love is. We'll see that today in our text as we, as we dig in deep. I hope you have your copy of God's Word open to 1 Peter 1, but you'll need it open because not only will we be looking at that, we'll be looking very in depth at a couple of other parallel texts. Today, we will grow, are going to be digging into the Christian obligation to love fellow believers. And along the way, we'll carefully define love and then make nine specific applications to you. We'll seek the help of the Lord at this time. Ever-gracious God, give us now humble, teachable, obedient hearts that we may receive what you reveal in your word and do what you command there. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen hope you're looking at your copy of 1 Peter chapter 1. You'll need it. I want you to see and be convinced by the words of Scripture. And what you'll notice is, is our text today, we have been preaching in 1 Peter for 10 Sundays, but today represents a huge shift from the vertical to the horizontal. The first 21 verses of Peter's epistle have all been about the vertical. By the vertical, I mean this. I mean the believer's relationship with the triune God. And so Peter has been talking about the indicative, what God has done for the believer. Look at your text at 1 Peter 1 and you see. Now notice this is all vertical, just you and the Lord. And so in verse 2, Peter speaks of God's electing choice of you, all vertical, you and the Lord. And then in verse 3, God's regeneration of you, the believer, taking out that heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. And then again in verse 4, all vertical, God's preparation of an inheritance for every elect believer. And then in verse 6 and 7, more vertical, God's ordaining of trials for you to mature you. And then in verses 10 through 12, God's guiding of redemptive history, slowly revealing the glory of Christ down through the ages, but doing so in such a way that the prophets and angels were kept on the edge of their seats. And then you have more of the vertical. Look carefully at your text, beginning in verse 13. We've just been treated to all these things, all these acts of redemption that God has done for the believer. And then, beginning in verse 13, you have the imperative. What should the believer be doing in response to God? Well, in verses 13 through 16, we're told because of all this grace that we've received, believers are under a a massive gospel duty to, in gratitude, strive for holiness. And we're told in verse 17, still vertical, just you and the Lord. At the center of this sanctification must be the fear of the Lord. And then in verses 18 through 21, the believer, we are told, must keep his eyes fixed on the vertical, fixed on Jesus' And his finished redemptive work. And so if we're just to stop right now, a believer can be excused from thinking the only relationship that exists is the relationship between God and me and me and God. Just this one vertical shoot. But now you'll be disabused of this. Because look at verse 22. Because in verse 22, Peter begins to speak about the believer's horizontal relationships. Peter, look carefully, talks about who the believer must love, the brethren. Then he talks about how the believer must love, sincerely and fervently. I want you to think about those two words. And I'm going to ask you this in 30 different ways this morning. Look around this room right now. This is not an abstract grouping of believers. It's your church, your people. The people who God in his providence has placed you with to struggle all the way to heaven. Let me ask you if your relationship with them can be characterized by these two words. Look at them there in verse 22. Sincere love and fervent love. By sincere, I mean no guile, no hidden agendas, transparent, open-hearted, open-handed, self-sacrificing love. And then fervent love. Is your relationship with them, is it a love that burns hot? Not even cold or lukewarm. Is your relationship one that burns hot at all times? Well, I want you to think about why this is a big deal to Peter. And this is why you're going to need your whole Bible. Keep one finger here and look back to John 13. Because Peter was there that night that the new commandment was made. Not once, not twice, but three times. Times when you look back to John thirteen, Peter was there. He was there in the upper room on that Monday Thursday night, just hours before Jesus was arrested and then would go to the cross on Friday. When Jesus gave the new commandment, look at John thirteen verse thirty four. Peter was there, and he heard from Jesus' own lips these words: a new commandment, a new imperative. A new mandate do I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And in case any of the disciples in the room weren't quite paying attention and were leaning over and saying, what did Jesus say? (coughs) Look at John 15, verse 12. Jesus repeats it. John 15:12, "This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you." And then in John 15, verse 17, "These things I command you that you love one another." Peter heard it three times within the space of 20 minutes. And so what I want you to do is I want you to think very carefully with me about this issue of love. I want to begin with your motives. You see the imperative there. You see the command. Jesus gives it three times. Peter is a faithful apostolic representative, repeats it, because that's what the apostles were to do, simply to repeat the teaching of Jesus. And so Peter repeats it here in 1 Peter 1.22. But I want to think about your motives. Why? Why should you love your fellow believer? And I want to point out two motives you should have. The first is the imperative of Christ. And I want to be very clear on this. You have an order. You have an imperative, a command, and it's incredibly explicit. Now, who is it who gives this command? What kind of authority does he have? This is the one who, according to John 1, he's the one who spoke and worlds were created. This is the one who said just before his ascension in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, all Authority has been given unto me. This is the one before whom we are told in Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow. The apostles heard this commandment and they all faithfully repeated it. Not only does Peter here repeat the commandment of Jesus in 1 Peter 1, 22, an imperative, love one another fervently with a pure heart. John says it in John chapter 1, verse 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. And so the first motivation you should have for loving one another is you're under command. You're under orders. From a great king who has repeatedly commanded you to love the brethren. But there's a second motivation that you should have. And that is the motivation of the example of Christ. A few years ago, the fad happened. You know, as fads go, this one was more long-lasting. I think it lasted about seven months. Long enough for people to get a bumper sticker for their car, or a bracelet for their wrist, or a t-shirt the WWJD fad. What would Jesus do? Well, I'll tell you what Jesus would do. He would love his people, and we're told that repeatedly. According to 1 John 3.16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. What would Jesus do? He would sacrificially lay down his life in love. The point being is Jesus is never all talk when it comes to love, but he's mighty in word and deed. And by the way, when Jesus commands us to love one another, he's not commanding us when he tells us to love fellow believers. He's not commanding us to love natural friends, but he's telling us to love natural enemies. If you look around this room very carefully, we come from different academic backgrounds. We come from different income brackets We come from different ethnicities. We come from different vocations. And we've come together on this day, not because we have a natural affinity, but we've come together because we have a supernatural affinity. We have this in common. We've all been redeemed by Christ and owe him a common allegiance. If Christian love were nothing more than the shared affection of mutually compatible people, it would be indistinguishable from pagan love for other pagans. The reason why Christian love stands out as a, as a display, for Jesus' sake, of mutual love among social incompatibles. You will notice that Jesus, and then Peter repeats this, Jesus commands his people. and I want you to think about this and be corrected even before we begin to define what love is. Jesus commands his people to love specific people. I won't give you all of the philosophical background. It goes back 350 years. But you have been trained by the world and by music and movies and bad literature to think that love cannot be commanded. It must arise spontaneously. That you, I love how our culture uses it, that you fall in love, backwards even. Always with someone attractive and pleasing. Have you noticed that nobody ever falls in love at first sight with the unattractive? Well, that's what our culture teaches, is you can actually fall in love always with somebody who's like you, attractive and pleasing. But what the scriptures teach is that love is not an autonomous, self-acting agency, which is supreme and can decide whom it will love and not love. But what the scripture teaches is God objectively dictates who we may and who we must love because he's the sovereign Lord. And since he has set his love on the unattractive and the foolish, that's what we're told in 1 Corinthians 1. He commands us to love those same people, to choose to love them, namely his elect. So I've been saying all of this, and I've, I've yet, on purpose, not yet defined my terms. Look back at 1 Peter one twenty two, where Peter is just faithfully, apostolically repeating Jesus' command to love one another fervently. And in the interest of correction, because our culture does this constantly, you're hearing All day, every day, in in music, in media, in literature, what love is. And it's 99.9% of the time always wrong. You're being told that love is an emotion and it's a feeling. I want to speak biblically and define what love is. Love is five things. As I said earlier, then we'll make nine applications to you. You're thinking, Carl, we'll be here till just before the evening service at that pace. Well, if you're a newlywed or a college-plus woman, we will excuse you because you have lunch after a while. And so let me answer with what love is by giving you five answers. And I want to retrain your mind and tell you what Scripture says. Because if you're going to obey this command in 1 Peter one twenty-two to love one another fervently with a pure heart, you need to know what it is. The first thing is, that we are told love is, is love is the fruit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. In fact, we're told in Galatians 5, when it gives us nine character traits, the first character trait that we are told that is an evidence that the whole, that you are converted and the Holy Spirit has come to, to take up residence within you and begin his work of conforming you to the image of Christ, the first evidence is love. How do you know A person is spirit-filled. Once again, our culture and aberrant versions of the church have told us, the way you know a person is spirit-filled is they can jump a pew and roll down the aisle and utter and babble nonsense. That's not how you know a person is spirit-filled. The first way that you know a person is filled with the Holy Spirit is they love the brethren. The person of the Holy Spirit, we are told in Galatians 5.22, indwells the believer and causes that believer to labor for the temporal and the eternal good of other believers and to promote their welfare above their own. Love is first and foremost the fruit of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. The second thing that love is, is love is always always sacrificial. Aren't we told of Jesus? By this we know love. Your ears should be perking up at that point. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And John, to complete the the circle, says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John is is teaching us there that true love is always sacrificial. It always moves my concerns, my comfort, my desires to the rear. And it says, how can I serve you? How can I give of my time, my, my wealth, my goods? How can I give of those to you? How can I sacrifice for you? Love is always sacrificial. True love is never a taking thing. It's a giving thing. A third way to describe love love is not talk or good wishes or sentiment or emotion it's action that's why john writes in first john three eighteen: let us not not love in word or in tongue but in deed and in truth love doesn't say to the hungry person in our midst be warmed and be filled I love you, be warmed and be filled. Love feeds and provides and serves. A fourth aspect and if there's anything our we should have learned in the last 3 years under covid it's this. Love always delights to be with its object. Do you remember how Paul prayed for the church in Colossae in Colossians 2, verse 2, that they would be knit together, it's a physical term, knit together in love. Love drives you to to long for those times of communion and fellowship with the body when you can love them and encourage them and build them up. During the COVID era, I had innumerable phone and Zoom conversations, by the way, Nobody despises Zoom more than me after the last three years. First of all, I never can figure out how to mute and turn myself on at the right times. But I had innumerable phone and Zoom conversations with other churches who were trying to figure out how to function as a church. And repeatedly, I spoke with people who said, well, all that really matters is being able to access the preaching of the word. And so, if that occurs by me sitting in my pajamas on my couch, that's fine. That's all I need. And so, I had to say over and over again it matters that we be together physically, because that is one of the manifestations and evidences of love. Love delights to be spatially with its object. The church is not just me. Please hear me carefully here. The church is not just me or just you in introverted solitar- solitariness, getting my weekly information dumped. It is worshiping together. Just a moment ago, as we sang the last stanza of Psalm 1, a cappella, and all you could hear were the voices of God's people. That is the closest you and I will get to glory before you go to the grave. That's as good as it gets right then. Is us being together, unhindered by any other barriers, singing God's praise? At least seven times in his epistles, it's interesting, seven times to five different congregations, Paul expresses this wistful longing. He says, it's, my letter is coming to you, but I really want to be with you. And so Paul writes to the church, for example, in Rome. In Romans 15, he says, I have a great desire after these many years to come to you. I want to enjoy your company. Those are inspired words. Why? Because Paul understands that love is always embodied. It's a physical thing. But then he says the same thing to the Corinthian church. Those knuckleheads in Corinth, Paul says, I want to come be with you. I'd think, well, Paul, I'd want to run away as fast as I could from them. But Paul loves them. And so he wants to be with them. He does the same thing with the church in Philippi in Philippians 2. Then he does the same thing with the church in Thessalonica. And then the same thing with his, his dying words in 2 Timothy to the church in Ephesus. To all of them, he says, I want to come be with you. A Zoom service would not suffice. The fourth mark of love is love delights to be with its object. The fifth, and you're going to say, Carl, you're cheating here. This is really like the fifth through the 23rd. But the fifth is, the fifth demonstration of what love is, is love's attributes are carefully defined in 1 Corinthians 13. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. Now, for those of you who had this read at your wedding, oh, I hate to disappoint you and make you mad, but this is not a romance or marriage text. In fact, there's not a drop of romance in 1 Corinthians 13. And look carefully there because we're defining today. This is my shot to define what love is. And what 1 Corinthians 13 is about, it's about body life. Do you know how I know that? Context. First Corinthians twelve, listen to these numerics. First Corinthians twelve is about body life. First Corinthians fourteen is about body life. Any idea what First Corinthians thirteen that sandwiched in between is about? It's about body life. And so Paul begins, I hope you're looking at First Corinthians thirteen. Paul begins with a series of hypothetical propositions. And he draws attention to a number of qualities that men admire. He says in verse one speaking ability that is spellbinding rhetoric. If it's loveless oratory, it's just noise. Verse two, prophecy. So you could foretell the stock market or the major league baseball standings two months from now or national elections next year. But if it's loveless prophecy, you are nothing. Verse two, if you understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, but it's Loveless knowledge, you're nothing. Or in verse 2 as well, if you possess faith, mountain-moving faith, but if it's loveless faith, you're nothing. And then in verse 3, Paul says, If you give everything you have to feed the poor, but it's loveless charity, it is of no profit, it's nothing. And then Paul gets extreme in verse 3. If I give my body to be burned, but if it's loveless, no prophet. And what Paul does is remarkable in verse 4. He returns he turns from a situation in which love is lacking in those first three verses to one in which it is present. And he describes the characteristics of true Christian love for others in the church. Now, if you're, if you're saying, I want to learn how to love, Carl, I realize I'm deeply deficient. Stare at these words with me. This is a crash course on what it means to love. In verse 4, Paul says, love is long-suffering. It's interesting, the most repeated theme in all of Paul's attributes of love is this one, long-suffering. Do you know why? Because if you're going to be in this congregation in a year, 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, do you know what attribute you're going to need? Patience. Long-suffering. As opposed to impatient and short-tempered. The person who loves fellow believers in the church will put up with a lot from them. They'll actually be wronged by other Christians, but endure it silently. And they'll do this over and over and over again since love is, look at verse 4, long-suffering. Do you remember what Paul said earlier to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6? He was rebuking them for taking each other to civil courts and suing one another. And he said, why not just be wronged and what he's advocating there is an attitude of long suffering I have relatives I'm sure y'all don't but mine are okies and they're from southwest Oklahoma I have relatives who will tell you the first time they meet you you have one shot with me and if you cross me once we're done And they mean it. We know families like this who we say, why don't you ever get together with Uncle Bill in 1979? And they tell you why. They know nothing of love. You expect that from unbelievers. But in the church, the believer, look carefully at verse 4. I'm not going to let you escape. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love must be long-suffering. It means you have to put up with me and I with you. Look at verse 4 as well. Love is kind. This is imitative of God's love who's kind to ungrateful and evil men. We're told in Luke chapter 6, kindness usually involves relieving suffering or meeting needs. It could be as simple as taking a meal to a new mom who just had a baby. Look at verse 4 as well. Love is not envious. That means love is never displeased when other believers are blessed by God or are succeeding. The true believer mortifies envy and puts on contentment in his own gifts, and he puts on joy over the accomplishments of other believers. The believer, in his great love for fellow Christians, can actually rejoice with those who are rejoicing in their success, as we're commanded. But Paul's just warming up. Paul says in verse for that love is not showy. It doesn't parade itself. So our love will never be characterized by pride. Look at what I've done. I am somebody. You know these people. We meet them in the pages of scripture. We think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 who gave a large gift to the church but kept back some of the proceeds for self. But they want to be known as very philanthropic. In our setting, this is the person who Dresses to be noticed, perhaps it's the super expensive outfit, or the attention-grabbing outfit, or they do something outrageous, just so they'll shine the spotlight on themselves. But Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit, says, The person who loves deeply, always, always, in every situation, shines the spotlight off of self and onto its object, others. Love is always others focused look at verse 4 again love is not puffed up again it's not self focused meaning love does not will not brag or boast about my accomplishments I buried a dear friend of mine 20 years ago who sat right back there Dr. Ben Threlkill and when I read these words that love is not puffed up I always think about Dr. Ben he was a highly decorated war hero in World War II He was an effective state legislature. He was a very successful dentist and much more. But he refused to talk about those things. And on two or three occasions when I would try to get him to tell me his war stories, he was highly decorated, all for bravery and for spectacular actions in World War II. And I said, Dr. Ben, tell me about those things. He said, Carl, we've got better things to talk about. Because love is humble. Love stays low to the ground. Then look carefully at verse 5. This is where our culture desperately needs to understand what love is. We're told that love is not rude. You know the rude person. They embarrass others with crudities, they make others the butt of their jokes. They're inconsiderate, they care nothing for the feelings of others, they're clueless and thoughtless. The Corinthian church, to whom Paul is writing this, were the prime examples of rudeness. We're told in 1 Corinthians 11, when they came to the Lord's Supper, they, this is rude ate and drank, didn't even wait on each other, and they drank so much they got drunk. And during worship services, they tried to outdo one another, all talking at the same time. In his wonderful book, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges talks about inconsiderateness and the person who never thinks of his words or impacts on others. This is the person who's always late. They always keep others waiting. They make messes. And they leave them for others to clean up. But love isn't rude. It seeks to give no offense. It's considerate. Look how deep Paul goes. Look at verse 5. Paul says, love does not seek its own. And Paul here is simply repeating what he's already said in Philippians 2 of considering others more important than yourself. The model, of course, is Jesus, who we are told in Philippians 2, set aside his own comfort and his own ease and came to be mocked, assaulted, and killed. Why? Because he loved you. This means if you love these people in this room, the brethren, this means that you will put their needs before yours. You will give them your undivided attention I'm speaking to them even when they drone on and on. Then look carefully at verse 5. And I want to speak to this because ours is probably the edgiest, angriest era in history. We're told love is not provoked. Love is not touchy or edgy or easily irritated by the way Proverbs 12 says it's the fool who's easily provoked. This is the person who justifies their sinful anger by saying things like, well, I do go off like a Roman candle, but I do get over it quickly. Or they blame it on their circumstances or others by saying, well, I wouldn't get so angry if you weren't a jerk. Or they blame shift by saying, well, that's just how my parents were. They were hot-tempered and I was raised that way. It's just my genetics. But the person who loves, listen to me carefully. The person who loves has an interminably long fuse. He refuses to knee jerk. Look at what we're told in verse 5. My angry brother or sister, look carefully at the words of Scripture. Love is not provoked. Don't tell me you love the brethren and then fly off the handle at them. Paul goes on in verse 5. Love thinks no evil. means that The Christian is always thinking the best of fellow believers. He doesn't impute evil motives to them. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity in verse 6. In fact, Peter will tell us later that love will cover a multitude of sins. Love rejoices in the truth, bears all things. Now notice, I want you to notice and begin to see a pattern here. Once again in verse 7 when Paul says love bears all things, he's talking about again, 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 The patience of love. Much of loving the brethren is simply putting up with them over the long haul. I know people in this town who are on their fifth and sixth congregation because they were in congregation number one and the preacher or the deacon or the elder or somebody said something to them or took their parking space. They were gone. Same story in church number two same story in church number three as pastor dodd says to these people you know after about the fifth time i think it's you but these are folks who not only do they not bear all things they bear nothing they have no patience cannot take an offense cannot take being crossed Paul goes on and says, they believe all things. It's the way of the world to believe the worst about people. But love is always ready to put the best construction on people's lives and words. Love hopes all things. The world looks for the downfall of others and assumes they cannot survive difficulties. But the believer has a deep desire for the fellow believer to succeed and persevere and bear fruit and mature. And then look at verse 7 again. And you might start seeing what love really is. Love endures all things. This is the third time in this brief context that Paul has said, Love is going to be patient. That's what it means to love the brethren, is to hang in with a recalcitrant, difficult group of people year after year after year. That's why Paul can say, then, in the ultimate statement of perseverance, look at verse 8 Love never fails. Unlike prophecy, which will go away, love for the brethren has staying power. All through eternity, we'll be relating to one another in love. The principle, of course, is that which is permanent is most important. Now go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, because in defining what love is, we've looked at five different things. But I want to make nine applications to you. And you're probably at this point saying, Carl, isn't pretty much everything you've said been application, we're just getting warmed up. Nine applications from this imperative. Now, keep your eye on the ball. The imperative is this, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Application number one to you. This command has great assurance value. There are some in this room who struggle with the assurance of your salvation. Only believers, only the regenerate, according to Jesus, are known and recognizable by this. Jesus says, by this will all men know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's some of you in this room when you've come and said, I'm struggling with assurance. How can I know that I I truly have eternal life? And one of the first questions I always ask is, do you love the brethren? Well, Yeah, I love the brethren, but I'm not sure if, if I have all my prepositions in the right order. John says, 1 John 3, we know. It's assurance. We know. We've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. How does Paul know believers are genuine when he writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1 or the church in Colossians one Their love for one another. Love provides assurance. The inverse is true. If a person is not actively loving the brethren as described by scripture, we can say he's an unbeliever. That's why John writes in 1 John 4, verse 20, If someone says he loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He says it again in 1 John 4. He who doesn't love doesn't know God. If you don't show, I'm not talking about talk or feelings, show. Remember, love is an action. If you don't show and demonstrate love for fellow believers, even the world has every right to say he's no Christian. And that's what Jesus is saying in John 13 when he says, by this will all men know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's as if Jesus turns to the world and says, I'm giving you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is is legit, is a Christian, on the basis of the love he shows to other Christians. The first thing you must know about love is it has profound assurance value. The second application you must hear is not only does love have great assurance value, it has apologetic value. Real love is visible because it's an action, remember? Real love is visible and can be seen by the world. You may not think that you can give a credible argument to your scholarly, unbelieving neighbor, and perhaps you can't. But you can love the body deeply. And that will be, according to Jesus, an effective witness to the reality of the gospel. Lost men may not understand complex philosophical (coughs) or theological arguments, but they know real love when they see it. The world will not be one... By you and I filling our heads with privately enjoyable information. The scriptures don't say health and wealth and miracles and programs. That's what the world will find genuine. No. But love among the brethren will do it. It has profound apologetic value. A third application. If love is the mark of genuine discipleship, and it is. It's the first fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If love is the mark of genuine discipleship, every time you engage in bickering, telling gossip, receiving gossip, meanness, harshness, you're saying, I'm really not one of Jesus' disciples My friends, guard against, put up a shield against those things that could harm or dampen love between brethren. Whether it be sarcastic speech, listen to yourself talk. Do you have an edge? Do complaints against one another just roll off your tongue? Do you hold grudges? Guard against those things because the mark of the believer is love. A fourth application how how do you love the brethren you see the question isn't do you love the brethren nobody in this room is going to say no I, I really don't i i come to woodford for Carl's sparkling intellectual preaching no everybody's going to say well yeah i love the brethren the real question is how how are you laying down your life for them remember love is an action how when? What time of the week? Are you, you putting off bitterness and wrath and selfishness and anger and malice? Are you kind to them, tenderhearted, forgiving them as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you? How are you loving them? What actions of self-sacrifice are you taking on behalf of the people in this room? Not some abstraction of the brethren, but these brethren who God has put your life together with. A fifth application. Have you ever repented a failure to love the brethren? Ever. The weakest, the lowest, the most ignorant believer can never be despised. They must, according to Christ your king's orders, be loved with an active, self-denying, self-sacrificing love. He that will not do this is in stark disobedience to his king's greatest and newest command. So when have you ever mourned over your cold and indifferent heart? Have you ever gone home on a Sunday night and said, God have mercy on me. I encouraged no one. I loved no one. I looked out for myself, and then I quickly left. When have you ever repented for failure to love the brethren? A sixth application. It is right and reasonable to love those whom Christ loved. Notice our command in 1 Peter 1.22. We're commanded, Peter faithfully giving an apostolic retelling of what Jesus commanded. We are to love the brethren. It's right and reasonable to love those whom Christ loves. Since he has proven by his sacrifice for them that he loves them, we must love them also. That Jesus loves the person should be the strongest of all motives to love that person. They are surely worthy of your love if Christ loves them. Isn't there something deeply wrong with the person who says, Christ may love you, but I have no affection for you? Because we are to love who and what Christ loves. How inconsistent for a person who says they love Christ to hate one of Christ's beloved. A seventh application. I want you to think historically with me for just a moment. How did the early church transform the world? by their unselfish love for one another. We're told in Acts chapter 2, immediately, as soon as Christ is risen from the dead and ascended, what are we told about them in Acts chapter 2? As soon as the day of Pentecost is over, we're told of them caring and sharing with one another. They didn't find this commandment, the commandment to love one another. They didn't find it impossible or grievous or a difficult yoke to bear. They called one another with deep meaning, brother and sister. They sent funds they couldn't afford to part with to strangers they'd never met hundreds of miles away simply because they were poor, starving Christians. Remember how Paul would take collections from new Gentile believers up in Asia to bring back to fellow believers in Jerusalem. Why? Why did they gladly open their wallets? To help people they'd never seen. Because they deeply love the brethren. The secret of the church's raw power in its rapid spread in the first century was this. They loved the brethren. An eighth application. I want to speak to people who came here today and you're not a believer and you know you're not a believer. You came here today because your mom dragged you here, your husband brought you here. And you're hearing this, and you're afraid that if you bow the knee to Christ as Savior and Lord, that he'll rob you of all joy and happiness, that you'll lose all the good times you have with your friends. My friend, you've misunderstood the gospel. If you'll repent and believe, not only will God give you eternal life with him in heaven, if you'll repent and believe in Jesus But he'll surround you now with other fellow believers who will love you deeply, who will sacrifice for you, who will weep at your sadness with you and dance at your joys with you. My friend, aren't you compelled today to come to Christ and be loved by him and his people? A ninth and final application. A congregation that understands love will be a congregation that is hospitable. How can you love people you don't know or spend time with? Let me plead with you to determine today and to make this promise. Since God has providentially ordained that I would live my life in this congregation with these people, I'm going to love them, and not just in talk, but in deed. Much of love is willingness to be imposed on. And so to love means I'm going to initiate, invite, fix a meal, be put out of my comfort zone, because love serves others. So I'm going to go home and make a plan to have these folks in my home and begin to know them and serve them because love serves others. Christian, God is speaking to you today through his authoritative word. He's commanding you to exercise a sincere love for these people, even to love them fervently. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that our hearts are so cold and stony towards one another. But we ask that using your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would change us, work in us, so that we might instead love each other, the people in this room, that we would love them deeply, fervently, sincerely from the heart. And so, Lord, enable us to lift our eyes from ourselves and our selfish preoccupations to see one another. Enable us to put off all coldness and selfishness and bitterness and apathy towards one another and put on deep affection for one another. Love.